Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13. Worked uh, the past several Sundays through a mini series here on uh, Romans 12 called Body Life, and we looked at the gifts. We looked at our roles that we play in the body of Christ, and uh, the last couple weeks we looked at the at the love that we're to show as a body of Christ, um, how we're to flesh out that love, and then last week we looked at how we're to treat our enemies. Um, and uh, the, 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 the counter-revolution, so to speak, uh, that Jesus' teaching uh, was to the common mindset of, of the day, and even our day, as to how we are to, how we are to love our enemies. And there are, there are three things that really anchored us and, and set the foundation structure for being able to love our enemies. And, and they are, we have to rest in the sure promises of God, that God in the end will make all things right. We also had to had to think about uh, our 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 roles here with our enemies and and, and loving people uh, uh, loving our enemies uh, not just in a passive sense but loving them actively in tangible ways. And then we were reminded in Romans chapter twelve uh, about how we are to examine our own position in the gospel and and out of that derive a humility and an awe and amazement of God's mercy and grace to us. That will enable us to love our enemies. And now we're going to uh, shift our focus back to Luke chapter, uh, the book of Luke and uh, work through the book of Luke at a slightly quicker pace, a slightly uh, uh, covering more material at a time, uh, but one that I hope will still be a blessing for you as we, as we work through the rest of the book of Luke. It seems like whenever there is a tragedy or a catastrophe that happens in the United States or another part of the world, there is some outspoken, supposed Christian spokesman who uses that as an opportunity to say that God was judging them because of their sin. And one of these people is Pat Robertson. And if you see Pat Robertson on your television screen, just change the channel. All right, Do us all a favor and change the channel. Uh, he's a false prophet. Uh, he has declared things that would happen that have not happened. And the Bible says someone who does that is a false prophet and should be ignored. Uh, he also has said things that are not in line with Scripture and seriously out of line with Scripture. And uh, what you might remember a few years ago when Hurricane Hurricane Katrina came up and he used that opportunity to say that God was judging uh, New Orleans for their, for their wickedness uh, with, that, uh, with that specific uh, hurricane. And that may or may not be true. In Luke 13, uh, there is a situation in, uh, in Israel where uh, Pilate, the governor of that province of the Roman Empire, had done something very cruel to some of the uh, Israelis there, the Galileans. Uh, they apparently were either on their way to the temple to offer sacrifices, or they were already there, and Pilate had these people slaughtered, and he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And the question that arose to Jesus was, uh, uh, these people must have deserved this, for this to happen. In other words, there must have been something very bad that they'd done that, that God would, would allow Pilate to do something terrible like this. And then Jesus brings up uh, the, uh, the, another situation that happened around Jerusalem where a tower that was being built fell and killed some of the people who were working on it. 
And Jesus in Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, makes a very significant point. What's interesting about Luke 13 is that it starts with a warning. It goes to a healing in verse 10 through 17. It reaches its crux in descriptions of the kingdom in verses 18 through 21. Then it works its way out again, talking about the narrow door and who will be saved and who will repent. And then finally closes again with another warning. It's what's called in scripture chiasm. Uh, it works. Its, it, it starts uh, starts here, works its way in, and it works its its way out again. And in verses one through nine of Luke thirteen, we have first of all the warning that he's going to return to later on at the end of the chapter. So just keep that in the back of your mind here. But I want us to think about this. Jesus tells them in this section here. He tells them, it is not what Pilate has cruelly done to innocent people that should be your first interest. Did did this happen to these people because they were extra sinners? It's kind of what the the folks who, um, uh, in John, talked about the blind man. They said, is is this man blind because he or his parents sinned? Well, wrong question, right? Jesus says, neither. Jesus wants them to understand that what Pilate had cruelly done to innocent people should be their first interest. But what that should be is a, is a weathercock, a, a, a weather vane that, that, that points the way the wind is blowing, where the wind is headed. That the holy and just God will do to all unrepentant sinners this, these situations, these tragedies, these catastrophes that had happened were just... Pointing to. You see, every catastrophe that happens does not mean that God is specifically judging that area for their sin. But they are a warning and a reminder to us that God will judge all things ultimately for their sin. And what we need to understand is that tragedies that occur serve to remind us of the urgency to repent. Notice what Jesus says after he reiterates these stories in verse 3. He says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That is the real issue. You see, Jesus and John the Baptist, when they go proclaiming the gospel in the book of Mark, the words they say is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, so therefore, repent. And tragedies remind us, they are foretaste of what will happen to all sinners if they do not repent. And that is the real issue. See, what we need to understand this morning here in the kingdom of God, is that tragedies on earth are heartbreaking. Catastrophes are heartrending. When you watch an earthquake in Haiti... That occurs, or the World Trade Center uh, a decade or so ago. Those are heartbreaking. But what we as believers need to understand, those are only a shadow of what is in store for the world that rejects Jesus and His reign in their life and live for themselves. And there's a warning bell tolling us, tolling for us in this text and then in the parable in verses 6 through 9. Jesus gives a parable about a fig tree. And the the, the owner uh, already has a vineyard. Lots of vines in his vineyard. But he takes a special step of planting a fig tree. 
One fig tree. So he's going to take special care and attention to that fig tree. He plants that fig tree in the vineyard. It receives special care. And the owner waits patiently for several years looking to taste that, the fruit of that tree that he had specially cultivated. But it was not doing, in verses 6 through 9, what it had been planted for. And he's ready to cut it down. And, his, and one of the workers under him intercedes for that tree. And he says, let's give it another year. Let's put manure around it. That's what it means when the King James says, let's dung it. Let's put manure around it. And maybe that'll, that'll spark something and it'll produce fruit. We'll give it another year. But it was not doing what he was planted for. So the owner of that vineyard and that tree that he's planted, he shows great mercy. He allows one more year. Allows another year. But folks, there is a wideness to God's mercy, but there is a limit to His patience. And what, what, the, what Jesus wants, to, uh, wants us to understand is that tree will be cut down. His patience will run out. That tree will be cut down if no fruit grows. And Jesus brings us all together to help us understand this one point. We cannot say in tragedies that when things happen to people, that those people deserved it because they're worse sinners than we are. There is a warning for all here in this text to change their way of thinking and live and repent and live under the grace and truth and reign of Jesus. So in verses 1 through 9, there's really an action step here. If we're going to recognize the reign of God, we need to know that God's reign includes tragedies to remind us of the greatest tragedy. What the greatest tragedy is. And the action step that we're to take from this passage is to repent and bear fruit. Jesus says in verse 9, And if it bear fruit, well... And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Folks, think about your own personal spiritual life this morning. And ask yourself this simple question. Am I bearing fruit in my life? Is there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? If you are not bearing fruit in your life, folks, there is a good indication from this passage that you have never repented. That you have not repented. And you therefore are heading toward a greater tragedy. An eternal one that will make tragedy on earth seem like a vacation. And Jesus' point in this text is, this is urgent. This, there is action needed now. He says, nay, but it, except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repent now is the weight of his words. Time is short. Are you bearing fruit in your Christian life? Am I bearing fruit in my Christian life? Or maybe your lack of productivity, perhaps, is because you are not attached to the life-giving vine of Jesus. And the result is destruction in the end. So ponder that question, and then understand that the greatest tragedy in all the world, the greatest catastrophe, is an unrepentant heart and the consequences of it. In spite of God's goodness to us. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according 
to his deeds. Recognize the reign of God. Understand that God's reign includes tragedies to remind us of the greatest tragedy. But now look at verses 10 through 17. There's a woman here who's had an issue. She's been bent over for 18 years in pain. And it's a Sabbath day. They're gathered in the synagogue uh, on a Sabbath day. And Jesus frees her from that. He heals her from it. You see, the Sabbath was meant to be a time that celebrated God's work. Celebrated God's mercy and liberation from bondage. But the guy who's in charge in the synagogue, he's angry that Jesus would do this on the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. What Jesus explains is that his mission doesn't go on vacation on Sabbath. Because the reign of God doesn't go on vacation. And this man who uh, perkles at the thought that Jesus would do this kind of a thing on the Sabbath, his upset attitude was not over what the rules were, But reality, it goes deeper than that. His upset attitude was over who rules. And that can be what happens in Christian traditions too. We forget that the point is to display the rule of God, the reign of God. And we can hold tightly to a form and forget the function. For example, in the New Testament, I think it can boil down, and there's overlap in these, but I think it can boil down the functions of the church into three things. Worship, nurture, and witness. And those three things can be displayed in a variety of different forms in different cultures all around the world. And if we hold on too too tightly to forms, we're in danger of missing the whole point of the church being to display the reign of God as an embassy of His kingdom. And our traditions cannot be blocking the edifying task of the church of worship, nurture, and mission. That's why functions must always occur in every generation, in every culture, since uh, 2,000 years ago. But forms always need to be reevaluated because they're always born out of a culture. It's an application of that function. Because they'll tend to be just, just be maintained because we've always done it that way. Or, and we can miss the point that, that God uses these functions to, to display His reign through His mission to the church. And in the New Testament... The way of Christ and the apostles needs to run the church. Jesus is the head of the church, not our preferences. And we get this, when we get this right perspective, look what happens in verse 17 when Jesus confronts this attitude. It says, And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I came across uh, an article that several of my friends were posting, and uh, if it keeps coming up, I think, well, it must have something good in it uh, to glean, so I, so I read it. And uh, I think the article really uh, uh, puts things in perspective and helps us understand the second point here, that God's reign is not stopped by traditions and opposition. This woman uh, writes this blog article called, They'll Be Dead by Morning. What difference will it make? I shared it uh, on Facebook the other day. But she writes this. There are moments in life that feel like a swift slap in the face. No one courts that. No one wants to feel that pain. But if it's a slap that rearranges your priorities to align with God's heart, then you will thank God even for that bracing offense. 
I received that slap today when I read the Washington Times news item that Kim Jong-un had ordered the execution of 33 Christians reported to have been part of planting over 500 underground churches in North Korea. I imagine 33 of my Christian friends executed for leading people to Christ, facilitating the worship, praying, or offering praise to God. I'd be horrified, sad, and angry, devastated. But I'd also know that God has the last word on their lives, not Kim Jong-un or the evil power behind him. Still, I would want their deaths to motivate the Church of Christ. I would want their deaths to galvanize other believers to put faith, feet to their own faith, to fuel their passion for Christ, to remember to pray for those who suffer, to spread God's word with more zeal, persistence, and creativity than ever before. While we in the West argue over worship styles, sleep then when there's a visiting preacher, bemoan having to endure a boring prayer request or off-key soloist, serve up the pastor's sermon over lunch, or sit home and judge the church unworthy of our attendance altogether, there are other brothers and sisters gasping their way to every precious moment when they can gather in hiding with other precious believers and hear a whispered message from God, bathed in the reading of His Word, and pray with passion and tears for strength to endure and the courage to continue speaking the truth under threat of death. God placed us all where we are. He assigned us to our stations. There is no guilt in being born in the land of the free as opposed to a country under harsh rule. But there is guilt if we use our freedom to indulge our petty preferences, to pat our comfort, to drift through this dark world basking in our own light rather than using it to serve those who waste away in prison cells wondering if they've been forgotten. Or their families left to struggle alone with hunger, fear, and loneliness. Or those serving the Lord in dark, dark places who need our prayers for their protection, deliverance, courage, and strength. This blog is just a bunch of words. It costs me absolutely nothing to write. I'm free here to say whatever I want without fear that it'll cost me and my loved ones their lives. But the words I speak on my knees have the power to move forces in the heavenly realm and make a difference for those who know the names and faces of those 33 facing execution. To comfort those who know their touch, their dreams, the plans they have for this life that will end any minute now. And to strengthen those who pick up the bloody batons these 33 will be forced to release and continue to build the kingdom of Christ in lands where the enemy of God rules. Worship will be different for me this week with a report of 33 gunshots bouncing around the inner chamber of my soul reminding me that we aren't home yet. Folks, I guarantee that if the American church is really persecuted for our faith, half the things we argue and fight about and unjustly judge others for wouldn't even be a thought. And God's reign is not stopped by traditions and opposition. So we need to examine ourselves and take the action step of asking, what are we holding tightly to, the functions or forms? And I'm not saying that all forms are created equal. There's a, there's a wisdom of sorting those out. Letting things in perspective. Thirdly, and here's where the crux of, the, of Jesus' uh, materialism, verses 18 through 21. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? Or how can I compare it? He says. It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took, and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, or three balls of dough, to the whole was leavened. Now, 
This parable and illustration is surprising to Jesus' audience. Because a mustard plant is not a tree, it's a bush. Now what's interesting about this is folks who like to uh, uh, argue about the, the reliability of the Bible will say, what was Jesus talking about? There's no such thing as a mustard tree, it grows like a shrub. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of this, and I'm explain why. You see, a mustard plant is normally a bush. It's a shrub. It's mostly hollow. It, it naturally uh, hardly proves a place for birds to want to nest. I mean, what bird is going to want to nest in a shrub, right? Want to be high up in a tree. But yet, this one grows from a seed into a tree that nestles all the birds of heaven, it says. And what Jesus is wanting us to understand about the kingdom of God, or we can put it another way, the reign of God, God's rule, is this. That God's reign may seem improbable. It may seem very inglorious. It may seem pathetically humble and mundane. But it is enormously successful. Subversively. Leaven. It's funny how he takes things that their, their Jewish understanding would, would, would normally put in categories of, of negatives. He takes leaven. It was a symbol in Jewish understanding of evil that infects and spreads. In the Old Testament, the, the Passover, they weren't to eat leavened bread, right? Because that leaven was a, was a picture of, of, of something, uh, of sin that would, that would grow and poison the rest. The purity of the, of the unleavened bread. But Jesus flips it the other way around. And he says... That the kingdom of God, God's reign, will in a sense poison and infect and spread and corrupt as a force the so-called man-centered religion of Israel. And will set in motion a rising force that would change Judaism and the Gentile world. See, when you put a little bit of leaven in the, in, the, in the dough, it disappears as, you, as, as it's mixed into the dough. But it is permeating. It is transforming it. It's changing it into something new. And God's reign will transform Judaism. And you can see that in the continuation of Luke's story in Acts chapter 2. This would have been jarring to them. Because the poor and the foolish of the world uh, that, that, are, that are normally despised were reached to display the wisdom of God. And the repentant ones who were in bondage are made free. You see, Jesus here is explaining to us there is no room for wanting God's reign on man's own terms. He doesn't work in the ways that we think he should in a flash and a bang. But in quiet and humble and mundane moments of life. Powerfully and improbably, that's how the kingdom of God works. You know, the millennial generation... I have something to say to you as someone who's just a little bit older than your generation, but can see it in my generation, your generation as well. You have been taught and told wrongly that your goal in life is to change the world. Your goal in life is to, is to make a difference. And there is a kernel of truth in that. But what really folks are saying to you is that the ordinary things in life don't mean anything. And if you're not making a difference unless you're doing great and amazing things in this world. Now here's what I want you to understand. Don't discount the so-called ordinary things of life as insignificant in the kingdom of God. You see folks, your life is made up of maybe a, a, a couple really big things in life. But the rest of your life is made up of a lot of very insignificant things. That's the majority of your life. 
You see, the little things in life are what life is made up of. And discard the narcissism and the self-love that talks about making a difference in the world, changing the world, etc. For, 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 for your own glory. And think about it this way, like Anthony Bradley writes. Dr. Anthony Bradley says this. I continue to be amazed by the number of youth and young adults who are stressed and burnt out from the regular shaming and feelings of inadequacy if they have to not be doing something unique and special. Today's millennial generation is being fed the message that if they don't do something extraordinary in this life, they are wasting their gifts and potential. The sad result is that many young adults feel ashamed if they settle into ordinary jobs, get married early, and start families, live in small towns, or as 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, aspire to live quietly and to mind their affairs and the work of their hands. For too many millennials, their greatest fear in this life is being an ordinary person with a non-glamorous job living in the suburbs and having nothing spectacular to boast about. You see, folks, we can take the things the world isn't impressed with and put a little Christian spin on it. And it can actually become a new form of legalism. Thinking I can earn God's favor by doing these spectacular things. But in reality, living for the sensational and what makes me feel important rather than faithful living by God's enabling power, is contrary to the kingdom of God. He works in an in, in unusual and, 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 and very mundane and inglorious ways here. And that's the third thing we need to understand, is God's reign is powerful in unpopular ways. You see, God's reign is just as powerfully recognized and displayed in your life as you hold your nose and change a messy diaper on a kid. As you ask forgiveness for a harsh word to your spouse or family member. As you wipe down that spot that everybody ignores at work that you know, needs to get taken care of. Or in holding back that first word that comes to your mind when you hit your thumb with that hammer. By God's grace. God's kingdom is just as powerfully displayed in your life. Folks, see God in the so-called small things in life. His power works in ordinary and unpopular settings. And that should be a comfort to us, because that's where we all are. It's just as powerful in those mundane moments of faithfulness to Him as the rare times in our life that may occur of sensational acts. There is dignity in all of life if it is lived under the reign of God. I was talking to a friend who serves orphans in in Haiti, and we were chatting about the call of God. And we'll have people say, I'm called to be a missionary to so-and-so. I'm called to do this. I'm talking about this great work. No one ever says they're called to clean the toilets. <laughs> no one ever says they're called to wipe crumbs or, 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 or wipe the spaghetti sauce off, a, off an infant or toddler's mouth. Nobody ever says they're called to do those things. But everybody says they're called to do these great and ordinary tasks. Folks, our eyes have to be opened by His grace to see this and live this way. If there is dignity in all of life it's, if it's lived in God's for God's glory and for God's rule and His grace. And finally tonight, fourthly, this afternoon, recognizing the reign of God in verses 22 through 35 will be accomplished through the person of His Son. Will be accomplished through the person of His Son. Remember, we started off with a warning. 
There's a, there's a healing in verses 10 through 17 that shows us the actions of the kingdom of God. There's descriptions of the kingdom that we just looked at. And now it's going to go to a narrow, he's going to talk about a narrow door and lead us back to that morning again to repent. Alright? So we're told in chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus transitioned from ministry in Galilee to now setting his face toward Jerusalem because he has a task that he's going to accomplish. He's going to die. And Luke reminds us of this in the last section of chapter 13 here. This continues the theme of God's reign through His plan and the judgment and separation and consequences for rejecting His reign in Jesus. He's going to show us here that many will try to derail His plan and many will reject His offer. But the reign of God marches on and it will be completed, but it will be completed very specifically through the person of Jesus. His son. Someone comes up to him and they say to Jesus, Lord, are there few that be saved? Are you just gonna are, are, are only a few gonna be saved? And that question is the wrong one. It's not about how many will be saved, Jesus explains, but it's about how many will squander the opportunity that they had to be saved. How many will squander the opportunity to be rescued from themselves and wanting God and His gifts on their own terms? And Jesus will say, Strive to enter in at the, at, the, at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Don't worry about uh, uh, how many are going to be saved. Worry about the opportunities that you've been given, Jesus says. There's only one door, one very narrow gate, and that gate is only fit to allow a very humble, thin soul to go through. You see, if you're still clinging to your, to your baggage and everything that you tried to, to, to work toward, uh, that's not going to fit through that gate. Many will try to squeeze through, but Jesus says, they shall not be able. Many will want to enter through that gate on their own terms. But they're going to be clinging to their stuff instead of what God has said. And that is totally backwards if we're talking about the reign of God as king. We don't dictate him. There's only one door. And Jesus says you must take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me alone. And that means there's no room for carrying anything else in. And that door will be closed to those who refuse to believe that. It's Christ and Christ alone. There will be people who thought they were very close to him. He says in verse 25 and 26, they were in his presence, they attached themselves to Jesus, but he had never attached himself to them as a life-giving vine. They're more of a parasite, wanting to get what they could from Jesus, but still live in their own terms. And they will be shut out. You see, it's Jesus plus nothing. Those who do enter in at the straight gate have placed their sin and their evil desires on Jesus on the cross have seen Him be punished in their place, and accept His eternal righteousness, His pure righteousness on their behalf. It's giving over the old me, and embracing Jesus in me. And Jesus will accomplish all that is necessary to transfer repentant sinners into the reign of God, and nothing will stop that work. He will finish the job. Jesus says, uh, there in verses 31 through 35, when he's told Herod is looking to kill you, Jesus says, 
Go ye and tell that fox, verse 32, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Jesus says he's going to finish the work. He's going to accomplish it. The mountain doom of Jerusalem is looming. Jesus will not turn away from the task. God's reign will be accomplished through the Son of God on the cross and out of the empty tomb three days later. God's reign will only be accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what he wants us to understand. It is Jesus who brings us all together. He's the entry point into God's reign, and he is the means. God's reign will only be accomplished in the person of Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand from Luke 13 is what he's already said in the first nine verses, and he's coming back to it again. Repent and cast yourself upon the finished work of Christ. Live according to the way of Christ and his apostles in the New Testament. It's the only way. Recognize and return to the reign of God. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, and this has never been true in your life, you need to come to the reign of God by bringing all your sin to the cross and leaving your old life there in exchange for a pure account of Christ's righteousness credited to your account and new life in Him. And believers, who I'm assuming are the majority sitting here this morning, are you living by your own impotent and weak means? In your own selfish priorities? Or are you continually repenting and living up to your new identity as a creation made new in Christ, seated above the heavenlies? The epistles tell us. Under the loving reign of God, by His grace and the power of the Spirit and not me. Believers, I'm sure you can think back to that time when you gave your life to Christ and you took His life. Are you still denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ as you said you did when you first believed, when you first gave your life to Christ? In the bulletin, there's a couple of quotes by MacArthur and A.W. Pink. The Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for His and being willing to pay whatever cost that may require. And Pink says, the Christian who has stopped repenting has stopped growing. There's no grace for those who don't humble themselves. Are you still denying yourself? The call in the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13 are to let go of the self-life and follow Christ by recognizing the reign of Christ in your life according to the way of Christ and the apostles in these pages. Jesus is the entry point and He is the whole circumference of the kingdom and reign of God. Let's pray.